This is three women and a bottle of wine. Three friends. Three former TV reporters. And one bottle of wine. Delving into whatever interests us. News, not news. What affects our lives? Because it's probably affecting yours too. I'm Kim Inslee. I'm Lynn Melling. And I'm Julie Barkey. And now on with the pod. Well, hello, everybody. We are back with another three women and a bottle of wine. I'm Julie. And I'm Lynn. And once and again, Kim. we have an amazing guest. Hello, Kim. Sorry, I just talked over you there. I stepped on I'm just, here. I'm so excited about our guest who she has a story that is sure to resonate with so many of you who may have a loved one living with Alzheimer's disease. Yeah. Uh, and we're talking about Carla Halt. And so I was really lucky to work with Carla for quite a while. Um, and we spent many days, actually, Carla, talking about your dad. Um, so she's going to talk about this passion project that she has. And so many goodbyes is the name of it. Um, and it is founded basically on your experiences with your dad. So we're going to start with Tell us a little bit about your dad and the incredible man that he was and his impact on your life. Thank you. Good to see all of you women and Kim. Wonderful to work with you again. I, yes, I adored my dad. I will start there. He was a remarkable human being and he was a quintessential Minnesota father. He uh, grew up in St. Paul's East Side, one of five children, a twin. His uh, grandparents were Swedish immigrants. He had a difficult childhood, quite um, honestly, in that his family was a broken family, and that was before the community overall could really handle that dynamic. So they literally spent some nights without a place to, to rest, to sleep, and they'd sleep on a park bench. And so they struggled, but they persisted, and they all ended, all five children ended up growing, going to college, uh, developing families. And uh, my dad worked at 3M more than 30 years, I think it was 36 years in total, and did exceptionally well there. But I think his true mark of success, I would say, was what he gave to the greater community. And he gave to his church, he gave to our immediate community in Forest Lake, Minnesota, which is my hometown that I love still. And he also gave to his family. And he just put a premium on recognizing that he had been blessed in his life and that also you cannot ever really put a, a price tag, if you will. You can never assume that these blessings will always be with you. So to try to give back to others and to try to pay it forward as he had received through his career at 3M and, and through having a good family, which of course he didn't have as a child. And so as a dad, he was remarkable. He was a big runner. So I would go running with him a lot. He was my moral compass. So if I had big questions regarding my education or even my love life, I would, you know, go to my dad and he would be the person who I would ask about, you know, should I consider this new job or what do you, what would you say about this? And so, uh, you know, when I started nearing this crisis involving him, coincidentally, I really wanted to go to him. And of course that really wasn't an option. I can't emphasize enough how amazing a person he was. What was his name? His name was Robert Bob Holt. He was a twin brother to my uncle Bill, William Holt, and they were Bobby and Billy. They were remarkable hockey stars, too. So they grew up in the Herb Brooks era and uh, Wendy Johnson, all, all of the Johnson brothers. So he was the former senator, former governor. And so there was quite a Johnson high school hockey era, and they were remarkable on the ice together. So really great athletes. And Bobby and Billy, they didn't like that nickname, but they were Bob and Bill. <laughs> 
really good on the ice rink, on the golf course, on the baseball field, you name it. And um, they really survived together and did well. So really important question here. The twins from Slapshot weren't named after your dad and his brother, were they? Nope, nope. But my dad is <laughs> Okay, this will be, this will probably be the part you edit out. My dad was <laughs> There was a book, there was a book written about a small town hockey team, a la Hoosiers, right? That won the state championship in the years that my dad was in high school. And they only had one defeat that year. And it was when, in the book references, when both Holt boys, Holt twins were on the ice. Because when my dad was a senior, he got a hockey stick in his kidney and he had to sit out for the state championship, the state tournament, which, as we know, in Minnesota is a huge deal. Yeah, it was traumatic for him. And so the two, the twins couldn't be on the ice together and exponentially better together. Mm-hmm. It would be so. Uh, so it was difficult. So, yeah. So they were not named in that movie, I don't believe, but they were referenced <laughs> one book which wow. we were always hoping was going to be made into a movie but it didn't ever happen but well, yeah. anything so, hockey is so iconic in Minnesota right so when did you guys when did your family realize that your dad was starting to experience memory loss and essentially how did that impact both him and you and your family So I actually was pregnant uh, with my first daughter. So my motherhood, we had basically started as a mother at the same time as my dad was starting with Alzheimer's. So Mm -hmm. I was living kind of a parallel path or track to the disease and the babies, but uh, he had a a surgery. And so he was in the hospital for it. And under the influence of narcotics, he became very confused and outright delusional. And there are multiple studies that have documented that that narcotics pain medication can give you a preview of what's to come in the Alzheimer's journey. And so during that time in the hospital, again, I was seven months pregnant. We were trying to reassure my dad, no, this isn't a conspiracy. No, the doctors and nurses are trying to care for you and not hurt you in any way. And after that procedure. And after he got out of the hospital, he, he started to do better. He recovered. He kind of resumed his normal life, but again, it was a preview. And after I had my first daughter that summer, we noticed increasingly his inability to remember words or just his inability to just navigate a social situation and be increasingly dependent on my mom and that sort of thing to the point that then in the fall, we went to visit my sister who was on sabbatical in Uh, Morocco and Northern Africa of all places. And my dad traveled with my husband and me and my baby. um, And he just couldn't, uh, he couldn't navigate an international airport. And so he became increasingly dependent on me for that. You know, this is where you present your passport and this is how you go through the line. And we had to catch this next flight to seek him and mom because my mom had gone ahead to meet with my sister. So that was also a preview. And then seeing my sister in Morocco, who hadn't seen my dad for a while, having that kind of uh, distant perspective, mm-hmm. she could also affirm, yes, this, this mm-hmm. seems to be happening because she didn't have that day-to-day glimpse mm-hmm. at my dad that we did. And so she also could see that. So I think it were just several of those key incidents, that hospital incident, just the summer of confusion followed by that big international trip that we knew we were on that journey. What was that like for you as an adult being, being the child, um, and all of a sudden you're, you kind of become the parent in the relationship. I'm just curious to know what that journey was like for you as 
the child turning into now the caregiver of your parents? It, it was incredibly difficult. And I think this is part of why I have so much empathy for families is because I say the word overwhelmed often when I describe the journey, because it fits, you are overwhelmed because you're so sad that this is happening to your loved one. At the same time, you need to start immediately making some significant practical decisions to protect them both currently and what you know will happen soon as they continue to decline. So in those initial days and months, I was, I was devastated, I'll be honest, because again, it would have been my dad I would have gone to for advice on, okay, dad, this is happening, what should I do? And I couldn't do that. And even though he was still reasonable and still somewhat rational, he was also still very much a proud person. And that's, that is very consistent with what many families experience. That denial is true. It is real. It exists. And it's a hard hurdle to overcome. And so I found myself trying to strategize, okay, how do we deal with this? How do we get my dad the help and the care that he needs? And so I literally, I, I remember being at my desk at CARE 11. And after I had filed my 10 PM story, calling the Alzheimer's Association hotline and saying, okay, this is my situation, but I do not feel I can directly communicate this to my dad. My whole family is in agreement. We all think we're, that this is the direction we're heading, but we don't feel like we can directly have that conversation. What do you recommend? They planted the seed initially and it's something that I continue to share with many others, as well as experts will share it with people too, that you can really work through the medical care providers. So I directly reached out to my dad's primary care doctor and said, listen, I have some suspicions as does my mom and my sisters about what's happening to my dad at his next visit. Can you please, you know, gauge what you can during that visit, but more importantly, can you refer him? to a neurologist? Can you request that he get the follow-up care, the testing that will help to screen whether this is actually happening? And sure enough, um, and most doctors will comply because they, they can see it, but I will know they only have that short appointment time they, they welcome family contributions and feedback. If you're seeing this in your loved one, let that loved one's doctor know, yeah. that nurse practitioner know, whoever it is, so that they can take the next steps too, especially if communication directly to the loved one might be difficult mm -hmm. or a little bit sensitive. This is a great segue because I wanted to get into what you're working with, so many goodbyes. Um, and my impression during this time was, this was an extraordinarily long period of time for you and your family. I mean, it, it went on for a very long time and it felt to me like you were kind of navigating a lot of this by yourself um, as a family. Uh, and I have to think that inspired you to start this organization. So tell us about so many goodbyes and, and what your hope is for this organization, for others going through this. That's absolutely true, Kim. I did feel like we were uh, somewhat alone. And I will qualify that to say there are incredible organizations already in the battlefield doing important work, but this is a war. So while the Alzheimer's Association might be a general, while there may be other organizations, the Mayo Medical Community, obviously mm -hmm. the University of Minnesota, uh, Health Partners Regions has a remarkable memory care aging um, division as well. That all said, they need as many soldiers on the field as possible. And when I started the journey, I felt I felt, again, I can't understate how much I was grieving 
because I was scared at losing the person who had been the foundation of my life. And I even struggle to remember those feelings now because they were so hard. And that's why I just feel for every family who is experiencing those initial days of realization that this is what's happening. And so I was feeling that and, and again, trying to say to myself, okay, what do we need to do to protect dad, to protect mom, who is trying to be his only caregiver to ensure that they're okay financially, practically in terms of his care and his needs. And so the Alzheimer's Association does remarkable work on the big picture and with research and with support groups and some community level organization, but that personal mentorship, that personal guide, if you well, I felt I desperately needed still. And that is part of what I want to offer families in particular, is that ability to be a sort of mentor to say to them, listen, I understand what you're going through. And, you know, basically, I'll sometimes describe it as a one way support group, because I think that there is the other reality of all of this, which is if you're a working mother and you're also trying to care for your parents. So again, I had babies and the disease and trying to, to work too. And if you're overwhelmed by that, it's difficult to also make every support group appointment or meeting that you might have within your community. So a one-way support group where people can download, I can listen. And that's my primary service is to listen and offer that empathy. But then beyond that, there's a wealth of information, sadly, that you learn quite quickly as you go through this journey yourself. And so I'm able to give a lot of information, but then beyond that, we are again, with the medical community here in Minnesota. And I have a network as, as a result of my reporting, as a result of my advocacy and MC work throughout the community, and as a result of being a daughter, of having this extensive network of neurologists and ger gerontologists and nurse practitioners, all of those caregivers who are really working on the front lines, who I can tap into on a regular basis if I need further additional medical expertise. So offering them the advice they may also need beyond the empathy and beyond the listening. And sometimes that also just simply means listening to the family, hearing about what they have as their challenges, given their loved one's needs, and then putting together for them a sort of document, if you will, about the various organizations and specific offerings or services available right within their community, whether that's Shakopee or Hudson or anywhere in, in the state or the region for that matter. Mm -hmm. So you kind of talked about this, Carla, but for somebody experiencing a family member with memory loss or Alzheimer's, what kind of advice would you give to them, especially in this era of the pandemic where maybe one-on-one -on -one connections won't be possible in person? How would you start them going down this journey towards finding support and the resources needed? Right. Well, I think the first, the first, uh, if you are just realizing this right now, and in many cases, there may be families that are just realizing this, they just, you know, saw their loved one over the holidays. And they, you know, with that reunion came this opportunity and this epiphany, this realization, okay, he or she has changed. Mm -hmm. They've changed in a significant way. And I need to take these steps. So if you're finding yourself experiencing that moment, I think it's imperative to give yourself a moment because that's big, you know, that's a big realization. 
But I would also add, don't pause for too long because there's needed steps to make and take and including uh, making sure that your assumption and your belief about what is happening is accurate medically, because there are a lot of other medical explanations for confusion. There may be something wrong with their medication, or there might be something related to hypertension. There are several other medical reasons for confusion. So you do, again, want to take that first really important concrete step of getting them the medical care that they need to confirm that this is the path that you as a family might be on. So once you've done that, once you've taken those two steps, then I would also say at that point, if you know for sure you're on the journey, look around you and look in, at who's in your village, because this is a marathon. I call it often my dad's last marathon because he was a marathoner. It's something we love to do together. And it is exhausting and you cannot do it alone. So whether it's within your group of friends, your group within your village or your extended greater community, you're going to need to look for additional support so that you can sustain this yourself and, and your loved one throughout the journey. I'd love to know how this has impacted you taking on this, this new organization, how this has impacted you personally um, and how you've grown as a person through this experience? I think that, you know, it's, it's multiple fold. I feel like it's a calling, you know, this wasn't something that back in college or graduate school, mm -hmm. I thought to myself, I'm going to develop a company to help families <laughs> on the Alzheimer's journey or it, it, in another important service that I do is um, doing workshops and long-term care centers to try to bridge that divide between families and caregivers who are exhausted and working in long-term care communities. But I, I didn't truly imagine this as my career path. Yeah. And so I will say that I feel like it was a bit of divine intervention in the best and in the worst way. Mm -hmm. And I never would wish this on anyone, this journey, but the fact of the matter is that 6.2 million Americans alone are on this journey today and all of their families, 50 million throughout the world, according to the World Health Organization. And that number is only going to grow exponentially. So everyone truly has a dog in this fight. If you're a taxpayer, you need to be concerned that we might have 12.7 million people by 2050 who have yeah. Alzheimer's dementia because it's literally possibly a, a decade of needed care and commitment and the cost that goes along with that. It's cost to your finances and of course it's cost to your heart. So I, I, I think in terms of what I'm getting out of this you know, whole endeavor is that I feel like I'm, I'm trying to address what I feel is a grave crisis on the horizon, as well as a current crisis for the families who are experiencing it today. Yeah. This fundamentally changed me. It changed me at my core because it took away the person who was at my core. And I don't want families to feel alone. It's an isolating journey. And so I want to be there for them and to help in any way I possibly can. And I will add that I'm also, I feel honoring my dad's legacy of service. He served other people. And he helped, you know, new refugees in our community. He helped the senior citizens in our community, he helped anyone. And knowing that he did that, I feel like this is part of his legacy as well. Yeah. He'd be proud of you. Yeah. I'm sure if, if, if I were to ask you what your hopes are for, for so many goodbyes, it would be to no longer be in business once they figure out a cure. Um, <laughs> But the second one, I'm sure, is for people to reach out to you when they need you. So if people 
hear this, how can they get in touch with you and what can they expect? They can reach me at Carla at so many But before they even do that, they can go to my website, so many because there they can see just an overview of both more in depth about my personal journey, but also the services that I'm offering for people again, who are touched by this incredibly cruel disease. And so if you're a family member, that's where you can learn more about the mentorships that I offer. If you're a long-term care community, you know, whether you're an administrator or someone who works there, you could learn more about the workshops that I offer. And part of what I'm doing there is I really believe that these caregivers are doing the most important Mm -hmm. work in our community and they are often underpaid and undertrained. And that's to no fault of the long-term care communities. It's just the reality and it's our job market. It's, it's you know, it's all of these uh, different factors kind of intersecting and making this ultimately a really cruel crisis on top of a cruel crisis. So trying to support the caregivers with a workshop that helps provide the family perspective. And part of why I do that workshop is because I will completely acknowledge and own that I was privileged in that I had a really close relationship with my dad and I could advocate for him and know him because of our close relationship. Not everyone has that kind of dynamic within their family. They know it's in them to protect their loved one, but maybe they don't have that close relationship. The other part of my privilege lies in my job that I had the flexibility to be present and to run there when he had needs and to make sure that I was present when hospice, you know, started their journey with my dad, that sort of thing, and be able to relay information about different caregivers and to also be there when caregivers who we had brought into my parents' home were struggling. I would interrupt and intervene and and try to, you know, care for my dad in the way that they, they weren't able to do. So that kind of perspective I'm able to bring to caregivers now working in long-term care communities, if that makes sense. So that uh, recognizing that not every family can be as present perhaps as I was able to be. And not every family necessarily had the wherewithal or the patience to communicate in the respectful way that these caregivers deserve. And it's really coming from a place of stress and pain that they're experiencing as a result of their loved one's journey. But um, it's really important for those families to be represented in a really positive way and for the caregivers to feel affirmed for the hard work that they're doing and for them to learn some of the skills or the strategies that I've learned along the way, both by my personal experience, but also by learning from the caregivers who were particularly gifted in our lives. So Carla, before we wrap up, you did speak a little bit about your job. Do you think that your job is a blessing and that you're you're able to elevate this issue in a way that many others can't? I think so. I think, you know, I'm, I am very grateful that we were able to do Uh, several part story that uh, ended up as a special about Alzheimer's and it focused on my dad's journey, my family's journey. And certainly that was a platform that allowed us to reach people that might not otherwise know a personal story connected to this disease and might not know the, the data and the statistics that are startling and that really relate to our whole greater community. So I'm grateful for the opportunity to share there. I think it's time to clink glasses to a heavy topic with wonderful people. And thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you, Carla. This has been lovely. Thank you. Appreciate the opportunity. Three Women and a Bottle of Wine is supported by 515 Productions. 
515 Productions is a video production business with base camps in Minneapolis and Des Moines, Iowa. Learn more at 515productions.com. Our logo was created by Aaliyah DeSalt, a creativity guru offering art workshops to everyone from business executives to book clubs because we all have untapped creative potential just waiting to be unleashed. You can find her contact information on our website. You can stay up to date on our podcast by checking out our website, threewomenandabottleofwine.com. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, where you'll find behind-the-scenes photos and, of course, much, much more. Be sure you don't miss an episode. Subscribe to our show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.